Hello, welcome to episode three of Australia's Next Steps. This is the Aspie podcast that aims to look beyond the pandemic and ask what's next for Australia. And it's brought to you by Oracle. I'm your host, Michael Shoebridge, the Director of Defence Strategy and National Security here at Aspie. This week on the podcast, we talk about the future of nation building and resilience in Australia. So I'm talking with Alison Pennington, Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute, and Tom Murphy, the Head of Agriculture and Regional Investment Strategy with the Queensland Investment Corporation. Uh, So what we'll cover really is first, a bit of an assessment of uh, the environment globally that the Australian economy uh, is moving into, a little bit about Australia's economic uh, status as well, but then uh, talk about some of the things that Australia demonstrated during the pandemic that are real strengths for us as we look at rebuilding uh, economically or renewing economically. But very importantly, uh, this is a different lens to bringing out those old prescriptions for reform. Uh, it's really taking that future economic environment as the starting point and then looking at Australia's attributes, you know, our natural resource endowments, the state of our manufacturing and the kind of resilience we've demonstrated through the pandemic. So hopefully you'll find it as fascinating to listen to as I found to take part of. And uh, we'll now get into that discussion with Alison and Tom. Alison and Tom, thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. I just thought we should start by thinking about the environment that Australia and Australia's economy is going into as we go, as we move out of the acute phase of the pandemic. My thought about it is that the right starting point for rebuilding ideas is to look at the environment that Australia will be operating in. And I'd like your thoughts on this, but my expectation is that it's a very depressed global economy that Australia's economy uh, will be uh, sitting within. So that's true whether it's North America or Europe or uh, Chinese and broader Asian demand. All consumer demand is depressed uh, by the pandemic because people can't get out there and, and buy. There's a lot of unemployment, so they don't have the money to buy, even if they could get out there and do that. And a lot of the economic damage is already there regardless of how quickly people can get back to work. And services like tourism and education are going to be depressed for years, with digital education maybe an exception, just because international travel is going to be so restricted for the next few years. And the other big factor is that the pandemic seems only to have accelerated strategic competition between China and the US, which again is about barriers in that the a previous uh, global economy. So a big shift in the nature of globalization, but also just a much more depressed global economy. Alison, what, what are your thoughts? Depression mark two is what we're, we're looking at and uh, economists are increasingly recognising this is completely unprecedented. It's also unique because usually in economic crises we can identify uh, some disruption in a market Uh, But this is essentially states having to intervene to shut down large sections of production and the market in order to maintain, well, give us the best chance at being able to rebuild an economy but save lives. So it's it's an amazing time. I think I look at how does Australia enter this crisis and in terms of the the discussion to have around the national resilience and the best way that we can be a resilient economy, 
we we kind of enter the crisis in an unenviable position. Uh, we are incredibly trade exposed. We are uh, geographically isolated from our historical strategic partners in global trade, being uh, the US and Europe. And domestically, the the motors of demand that that keep our uh, economic activity going in this country are very fragile uh, in the time of physical distancing and the shutting of borders because migration has been a massive part of how essentially economic growth has depended on the constant increase of the population through migration, uh, but also our skill system has depended on migration. We've had growth of low wage and very insecure services work, which is low productivity. We don't have people working with robots. We've got more and more people uh, delivering food or walking around like human billboards. And this is a really low productive, poor wage base to have coming into a crisis. And also the, the ongoing issue of uh, so much of our demand depends on the increasing price of housing assets, which you know people feel richer, so they consume more, and it keeps the construction services going. And basically, these these three factors are all going to be really uh, facing a huge disruption, uh, as well as obviously exports because we can't bring international students here to to purchase education anymore. And yeah, we come into the crisis with a, a decimated industrial base which has been the legacy of, of decades of deindustrialization and, and a failure to support and uh, invest in our manufacturing capacity. Um, and so, yeah, it's almost like we have to, it's so important to have these conversations because we're building from the ground up again. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you're right about those people-facing industries, ones that rely on a whole lot of human contact, you know, whether it's restaurants or other services, they really are, are going to bear a lot of the continued economic pain here because... Uh, without a vaccine, that human level of contact is is going to be reduced uh, unless we go to the sort of Australia and New Zealand bubble of safety. But, you know, excellent points. To, uh, and, Tom, what, what are your thoughts about that broader um, yeah. economic environment? Uh, well, I've been sort of, you know, very pessimistic, I guess, about the next coming period. My worry was always that while some were saying, look, you know, it, it's it, could be a matter of a sort of a you know months or twelve months or whatever. That the problem for me was always the simultaneous nature of the shutdown globally, but even historically, and even during two thousand and eight, uh, and then historically, uh, when you've had crises that have affected the economy, whether it's the Great Depression or the war, you know there are elements of activity that still continues, and either in other parts of the world uh, because it's not always sim- simultaneous which sort of gives it a bit of a flaw in a sense. And my concern was always the simultaneous nature of every economy in the world basically grounding to a halt and very much uh, the different capacities of, of the governments to be able to you know, maintain their economies during this period. Uh, I, so it, that was always a real concern for me. I guess on the flip side, you know, there is an argument that, look, unlike, say, 2008, you know, it wasn't this is sort of a, something coming in from left field it's not structurally a financial problem uh but it can the problem with that is it can quickly become a financial problem because if you've got you know, basically a complete pause in the economy for a long period of time causes its own structural problems i would say to allison that allison made a great point on migration if there's something that i've always noted about the australian economy versus global economies is that a very underestimated engine room of our growth is being population growth through migration. Mm. 
Uh, It's one of the highest in the world. It's very underestimated in terms of it's the constant annual stimulus into our economy of having a very healthy population growth rate for migration. And that will no doubt, forget even the temporary temporary, um, influx of of tourists, et cetera, in the country, but if it starts to slow down actually global migration, uh, immigration, uh, then that will have a serious effect. Which, which I, I think, think it will. I think that's going to happen. It absolutely will. But I would say one thing on the positive side, though, for the economy, yep. slightly uh, in defence of the Australian economy, I would say that Alison's correct in that we have structural flaws coming into this economy which are unique to us and will be a problem. But there are enormous structural strengths within the Australian economy, including the financial, our financial institutions, the maturity of our institutions. I think the strength of the Commonwealth budget, which even though we've spent billions you know, it's certainly still, I would argue, a lot stronger than uh, most other, certainly Western countries globally. So that it puts us in a in, uh, puts us in a good position, at least for a period of time, to weather the crisis. Yeah, I think you're I, right. I, I, go ahead, Alison. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think it is worth. While I I did paint a bit of a doom and gloom picture of the structural problems, it's it's really because I'm trying to egg us on to to fix them so that we yes. can get out of it. But I think it's so important to know what our strengths are too and. I kind of do a bit of a, a global survey and try and talk to people I know around the place and keep track of what's happening in politics. And you know, we've we've got our fair share of issues in Australia, but what we can say is that this sort of anti-politics right-wing populism that ha- has really grown across um, much of the developed world hasn't really made a strong base in Australia. And I think that that shows that people have um, more of a sense of shared values, there's more trust in our democratic institutions. Of course, we know that, that all the stats show that this has been declining as well. But generally, uh, Australians believe in the role of government and therefore the role of um, some kind of institution that intervenes for the collective good of all. And, and that's Ooh. huge. Also, we're food secure, which I'm sure Tom will have heaps to say about. Um, and also, we have control, control over our currency and therefore over all of our fiscal levers that we need to to talk about this restructuring and this rebuilding conversation. There are lots of countries that, um, particularly those in the European Union, that don't have that control over their currency and they, they can't make decisions as a collective nation about wh- what it is that they want to do. Mm. Yes, look, I, I think this is a great point to, to start some of the positives of, of this discussion about rebuilding and, and a more resilient Australia. I think one of the big attributes that Australia has is how we have managed the pandemic as a set of governments, as a set of companies and other public and private institutions, and as a population. Um, Australia is a standout global best practice example of how a nation and set of public and private institutions can respond. And really that is is a fantastic selling point and starting point for rebuilding the Australian economy in a new way. So we've, we've always been a safe haven for foreign investment when there have been global risks. But this pandemic is probably the biggest simultaneous global risk, as you mentioned, Tom. From your point of view, with your equity investment uh, background, Tom, do you think this is a really good foundation for Australia to make itself an even more trusted brand? Yeah, I think we're pretty well established in that role. I actually think for as many years as I was working within equity markets offshore, we always played that role and particularly our currency always played that role in terms of any sort of national, uh, sorry, 
global crisis or sort of threat to sort of international order, uh, you would always see uh, investment in the Australian dollar as a safe haven currency. And you'd also see our equity markets respond accordingly, particularly into those, obviously, those companies that are more immune to the global risks. In saying that, though, I mean, to Alison's point, very heavily reliant on China, anything uh, globally that sort of threatens that suspension of trade, particularly to Asia and particularly to China, we are di- always seen very much within that vulnerability. So it isn't it isn't universal in terms of our safe haven potential, but we consistently played that role as 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 that safe haven market. But um, Tom, I suppose I'm I'm not thinking so much as a short term place to hide your cash. I'm, term, term. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking more in a different way. Like I understand what you're saying, but I'm thinking more. Do you think that we are the front end of a whole lot of global supply chains, you know, whether it's natural resources like iron ore, natural gas, aluminium, or, or whether it's renewable energy or whether it's uh, agriculture? Uh, yeah. We are the front end of these global supply chains in a world that's in a chronic crisis because of a public health emergency like we're in now. Mm. Is that attribute of being a clean, safe and secure source of supply a more yeah. important attribute? And yeah. is, and that, that to me is different to the kind of safe haven phenomenon that you're talking about. Yeah, well, I think it's an element of it. I think going forward, I think it very much determines, I think it's very we're going to be very much determined on how long this lasts and how much structural damage it's caused. I think where that comes into play, I think we can definitely, we've got to start reorientating our economy, I think, to become more of that that safe, secure supply, you know, the you know, originator of the supply chain. But I think that the key with being COVID-free and very much getting to a point where we'll be able to maintain it because of our island status, um, the beauty of that is uh, they can trust there will be no supply chain disruption. You know, I remember back in the days when, you know, the, the large LNG projects were, were rolled out in Gladstone, there was a lot of debate internal debate about whether we would get the price for our gas and then why would the rest of the world necessarily pay a premium for our gas versus the rest of the world. But they did, and they did because of that security of supply. And these sort of times, and the longer they last, uh, means that more and more product that we produce, they'll attribute a premium because they know they've got surety of supply and those supply chains within Australia will not be disrupted. Great, Tom. Alison, I might bring you in here because we're yeah. talking about the pandemic, but I'm also thinking... There's a bunch of enduring challenges that Australia had before the pandemic that endure after it. So, you know, drought, mm. fire, domestic and regional natural disasters, uh, the implications of climate change is accelerating all of those problems. So the idea that we already were in a region uh, and even in a country that needed to invest more in uh, adaptation and mitigation of some of these consequences, how does that play into this idea that uh, there's now a changed risk appetite in the public in Australia about the kinds of vulnerabilities that are acceptable and therefore the kind of opportunities that Australia has. What what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think I would respond and I'd weave in some of my thoughts in relation to the previous contribution because we, we shouldn't get too uh, comfortable about the strength of the Australian currency because the, the catch-22 of this is after the GFC, obviously our currency was strong because China was buying all of our commodities. So the Australian dollar was safe because China was industrializing. Of course, they were going to keep buying our dollars. So it was a safe currency. 
Um, but actually, the economy is teetering on the edge of deflation right now. Uh, so there's every risk that we enter into a deflationary spiral, um, and you know that means prices collapse and whatever uh, whatever businesses are still existing and have s- survived this carnage are unable to get the the confidence and ability to reinvest. So I, I think what's really important when we think about moving forward, we have to think about how important it is to maintain the wage base. And that's the, the consumption capacity, the p- ability of people to buy stuff. And that's that's has to be one of the main principles that we we keep in mind moving forward. And that's got everything to do with industrial relations. That's a lot about the minimum wages, um, you know, bargaining power, industrial relations system, you know, how we make agreements. And but in terms of the the industry makeup, I think we we do a lot of work at the Center for Future Work. We've tracked the decline of the manufacturing sector and we also track the decline of manufacturing with uh, low productivity rates. Um, lower rates of innovation, so less less investment in research and development, lower wages, and so we think it's, it's no surprise that the the loss of that productive capacity has meant that we are having negative economic outcomes that put us in a in a worse position. So part of the reason why it's so important to rebuild manufacturing now is not just because we are beholden to international supply chains for the for the production of the essential medical goods we need right now. I think it's something like 90% of uh, um, medical goods have to be imported and that puts us in a very vulnerable position uh, as we move through this pandemic. There's no way that we're going to be looking at opening up different sectors if we don't have all the tools um, and the armour essentially that we need. If we think of this like a war, we need to be able to produce our our weapons and our armour to, to get through the war. Um, and then you've got the issue of uh, lots of our our small manufacturers, whatever capacity we do have here, is is also dependent on imports and uh, inputs from other parts of the world. So we need to be able to plug those inputs and save those supply chains so that we can build out of them. And then the long-term picture, of course, is the risk of uh, what climate change presents as just layering that on top of this kamikaze sort of situation we have of uh, so many compounding problems. But Australia, there's no way that our economy can rebuild uh, purely on a on a mining basis. It's not going to be a mining led recovery. It's it's impossible for um, mining and resources to do this. Uh, it's going to be huge public investments that are required, and it's going to be about rebuilding the capital base and the industrial base, um, and engaging in serious industry policy in a way that Australia has neglected and hasn't um, mm. hasn't done now for for decades. So that's about you know stuff like investing in water technology. Uh, there's a, so many products that we're going to have to develop that are going to be a very Australian-specific, specific to our risks. Instead of just digging stuff out of the ground, how can we add value to that stuff? So lithium is one area where we have so much capacity um, to, instead of just you know digging raw lithium out of the ground and sending it to China where it adds all the value and then we buy back the batteries. Alison, I think that's a really interesting uh, proposition and principle. You know, my view is the public expectation that uh, Australia between government and the private sector is really going to reduce some of the vulnerabilities that have been exposed by the pandemic. Uh, I think there's a very strong public expectation there, and that's very different a policy and decision-making environment to what we had before. So mm. my thought is a lot of the economic reform initiatives we're seeing trotted out are things that were prepared earlier for a previous time and a previous view of risk. 
that's changed. So, you know, my analogy for that is uh, people that are saying company tax breaks are the answer or deregulation is the answer or, or, you know, building a whole bunch of new dams is the answer. Uh, people that are they're ferreting around in their drawers and getting old doctor's mm. prescriptions out for previous illnesses. But this is a new situation and requires a new prescription. And I think your idea about what are those advantages we have because we're the front end of some of these international production chains, are they a foundation for a new kind of Australian economy that rebuilds manufacturing? So, you know, whether, whether it's agriculture or natural resources or critical minerals, as you mentioned, a government and private investment into advanced manufacturing that uses those inputs we produce and it's a change logic. Instead of just saying there'll be another part of the, in the world that has a lower cost structure, they can process the raw materials. We do that here. And that has two benefits. Well, three, it's an employment benefit. Uh, mm -hmm. It's economic activity in our country. But it's also part of that future you talked about, Tom, as Australia is a clean, safe and secure source of supply to the world. So is building on those... Uh, those areas where we're the front end of these uh, supply chains, still part of our trading future, but a whole different philosophy for Australia's economy. Tom, what, what are your thoughts about that with your hard-headed investment mind and, and your experience? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, we could, again, we could talk forever on those topics, but I think probably a little bit contradictory to your last point. I do think a lot of the issues that we're debated coming into this crisis still very much apply, but I think they've been amplified, the need for them has been amplified. I think regardless of what we decide and, and everything that Alison talked about, I would agree with that. The hard part is collaboration. And all the, the nations that have really done something significant, even more recently than you know, forget about, say, America in terms of its nation-building you know, programs over time, but when you think about Israel, or you think about even Holland, or you think about Singapore, or you think about in a very different political economic mix. But it still comes down to a collaboration, like a, 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 a sense of nation, a sense of national strategy, and and real collaboration between government, private, yeah. community. Mm. Now, we really, I don't think, have been very good at that at all. And unless we have that and it's real and government is willing to take on some of the risk of putting up, you know, putting together uh, platforms that enable private market to come in, um, and there'll always be that tension of, of how and why, but I don't think government hasn't been open to a degree of risk tolerance that's necessary yeah. To, yeah, yeah. To, to start to spark coordination with the private market. Uh, and in saying that on the private market side, you know, we can all talk about wanting to have manufacturing in Australia, which we all would love, but, you know, what stops my mate who runs a, a steel manufacturing company here buying his inputs from China because they're markedly cheaper? And to Alison's point, unless you, unless we coordinate on industrial relations and we coordinate in terms of government making it, incentivising it from a tax perspective, perhaps, unless we really coordinate and have an overall strategy, it's very hard to put it together independently. Yes, yeah. yes. I wonder, though. Um, it's like the Buy Australia campaign. It's a great yeah. campaign, but the yeah. average bloke in the street won't buy Australian if it's cheaper coming from China. Yeah. So that's very hard because it's, um, you know. But, but what about this as an idea? It's more than public sentiment is my point. It really needs. 
Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Alison, I'll get your thought on this. So I, I, I agree with you, Tom, but I, I think we're seeing more of that unified Team Australia approach with the response to the pandemic. You see it with the National Cabinet. You see it with the National COVID Commission, with the corporate leaders in there. So we now have the, the beginnings of that national approach that can have a national strategy, as you talk about, and take account of these advantages. But, Alison, I, I take your point, too, that, uh, and you're both saying similar things, this is not all just going to be private sector-led. It's going to take a next wave of government stimulus. But in, in what way? And uh, should it be around business investment decisions now need to take account of the risk of disruption of supply chains, whether it's state-led disruption like economic coercion or some of these natural risks that we're seeing? And do we need to build that into uh, government uh, tax and incentive structures and uh, push our corporate sector to also take that kind of business case approach? And then, you know, the benefits of investing in Australia become greater, but also uh, investing in trusted partners where they've got similar um, strong institutions that have helped manage the risks we've seen in the pandemic and create a sort of trusted set of economic partnerships um, regionally for Australia. I would say that I think we would all agree that uh, regardless of if we think that uh, we want a, a longer form position of public investment in an economy or uh, you know more private sector led in absolute crisis, which is this is we're not talking stimulus anymore. Stimulus is when government steps in to pump prime an area of economy to, to keep the, all the cogs turning. We're talking about reconstructing cogs now. And the overall framework in which public policy and governments have been shaped uh, since you know the mid-70s has been on the basis of increasing competition between individual businesses, uh, gives us more efficient outcomes, is the most efficient way of coordinating society. What do you do when the entire, all of society and all of the economy collapses? So any, any policy prescription that is still based in this idea that there's we're just going to wait and, and mosey around until there are individual businesses that are willing to take risks. I mean, this is the role of government. We, we vote democratically. We empower this institution to be able to provide leadership. You know, I'm an ex-public servant and I, I've seen what's happened to the capacity of the public service over, um, over time and I've studied it and I think it's, we are at a point where the, the level of coordination and cooperation and integration that's required in our time is is going to really, really target not only the political regime, um, not if, so never mind the contradictions of, of whatever it is that government has to get its head around, but how ready are our institutions to be able to forge together these relationships because it's the coordination required between all levels of government, councils, industry, uh, skills and, and technical services. Right. Like you need all the education sector integrated as well and they have to be talking and coordinating and you need leadership in that process and it can't be any one business. Ooh. It has to be government because it's em empowered to yes. do that, uh, play that yeah. role. And I think that's the question we have to say is are we prepared and is, are our institutions prepared for that, for that struggle? But I, I think there are seeds of hope there, as I say, with the way uh, all the different parts of our nation have come together around the pandemic response. I suppose uh, the thing is to not let 
when when the uh, the acute pressure of the pandemic starts to ease to not let those strengths dissipate because that's, Tom, the, that's uh, the risk you, you, that's the risk yeah yeah but but you're right we've got a whole lot of financial strength whether it's in the private sector the banks the superannuation funds or the commonwealth uh, budget so we've got we've got the financial heft to make the investments we need um, oh, yeah. We know we've got a, a whole lot of the attributes. Yeah, fourth, fourth biggest superannuation pool on the planet from the a planet, country that has 25 million people. And all invests in is equities and, and bonds. Yeah, so so I think the lesson out of this, and I know we've just about run out of time, is what we've been lacking is that cohesive national approach. Um, we've now been forced to have that with the pandemic. We've got to keep that. Um, and I, I think some of these messages about uh, us being at the front end of these supply chains are key for our planning as well. Take your points, Alison, about manufacturing has really wasted away. But we've even seen with some of the local manufacturing that's been crisis driven, we are able to do more than we would have expected. And that, again, to me, is a, a source of optimism as we look forward. So, you know, one future I can see is Australia is this uh, trusted place where. Risks are lower, risks uh, uh, for investment, but also risks for uh, producing things that other other partners need. And uh, geopolitically, um, it's going to be less and less acceptable to put too much uh, concentration of Australia's economic destiny in places where we don't share strategic interests or where the risks are obviously large. And I would say China is, is one of those largest places. But uh, a future where other parts of the world that have managed the pandemic well become closer economic partners, um, and it's a, like a coalition of the well as well as a coalition of the trusted. I think that could be an interesting principle for our future as well. Maybe that's uh, something to get your last thoughts on. And all this tells me is we haven't got anywhere near uh, getting around this total topic, so we might have to think about uh, a second phase. But let's let's end with some of your reflections on that question. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to uh, your point and to Alison's point, platforms whereby you structure that collaboration um, is really important. I remember a few years ago, we put together a, uh, a forum called the Australian Economic Forum. It was basically the concept was an Australian version of Davos, where you had Prime Minister, Treasurer, RBA Governor, Cabinet, top 20 CEOs in Australia, industrial leaders, etc., having a regular gathering. And it sounds like just a conference, but it's not. It's actually a gathering of our leaders and then having sort of clear discussion points and debates and having that structured over a longer period of time. It was interesting how hard it was just to get that together. And you, and yet you would think that would be something any nation would try and do. And, and I think to your point, the, this emergency cabinet has almost awakened within even our political leaders how important that is just regular contact, a platform by where they're sharing ideas on a, on, a, on a regular basis and how powerful that can be. And it sounds like a simple thing, but actually bringing people together face-to-face or in this case probably virtually on a regular basis makes a difference. I think that's something we should try, you know, I actually think the Prime Minister will continue with through, throughout his, his tenure. So providing platforms for col- collaboration, I think, when it comes to policy and strategy and industry is important and I think we'd all be very surprised how little of that happens. Yeah, Alison, your thoughts? Um, yeah, look, I, I think the way we should we should just always be really clear that this crisis is if we keep framing our thoughts based on uh, what is the private sector capable of doing right now, then we're not going to be able to get out of this hole. So, 
I, I like to think of this period as rather than one of uh, crowding out, which is a, an economic term where the idea is if the public sector gets involved in a sector, it, it crowds out the ability of um, private actors. I think we're in a, a period of crowding in. We're looking for ways to create those cogs and bring capital to the table. And I, I think based on this idea that, well, the, the reality that we're going to have to have massive fiscal expenditures in the long term to reconstruct our economy, I think I like to think about the the kind of high investment uh, sustainable and high wage economy that we should be trying to build one that's got clear pathways between skills and jobs and wages that allow people to have a decent quality of life one that's got a, a high capital intensive um, export driven manufacturing sector it's going to be smaller than of course than it has been in the past but you know something that's pr- providing that sort of high productivity base and then providing all the social services and public services that Australians we know, want. Um, Elections have been determined on these factors. People really, really value uh, public education and public health care and a a good safety net. So I think if we if we start broadening out the conversation about the kind of economy we want to have, we we see that this is actually a collective and democratic one um, that can involve Mm. as many people and as as possible. We want to have this conversation with lots of people. Mm. No, I was just going to say on Alison's, just to follow on from Alison's point, the point she made earlier in terms of environmental sustainability. Uh, I just think we're, we need to get just also get smarter about the investment vehicles that the government is, is using in order to fund investment into land management, fund investment into uh, regional infrastructure that, um, that encourages sustainable investment. And, you know, there are models out there that are working that the government could adopt to really assist in large-scale sustainable land management um, in Australia which actually doesn't compromise our commercial return. It actually assists it. And I see the same in Northern Australia in terms of regional development programs and how they're applied. There are other models out there that work and um, in terms of providing a more uh, investment vehicles that are conducive to public and private partnerships that we're just not adopting because the risk tolerance of government, and this is not just Australian government, governments globally, is, is very constrained. And hopefully this sort of crisis is the sort of crisis that opens up that tolerance. Yes, yeah. I, I think that's a really um, insightful and, and positive note to, to end this. And I think you've both really brought out to me that theme of the public-private partnership. And you know, I keep going back to how Australia has been handling the pandemic. I think it has been a na- national public-private partnership and it's succeeded. So the kind of approach you're both talking about our economic future involves that continued, maybe even deeper, public-private partnership. Alison, you're right. You know that uh, crowding in, let let the government lean in towards investing in in our economy and do it with the private sector and use some of the models that that you're talking about, Tom. Yeah. And our future is a, a clean, safe, secure source of supply. Uh, with high-wage advanced manufacturing, all are founded on our abundant natural resources and our educated people. I, that's not a bad future to have. So we started this with a very dark uh, look at the global <laughs> environment and, and some of the, the legacy of the Australian economy, but I'm coming out of it 
feeling like we actually can be in control of a pretty positive destiny for Australia's prosperity and security and security in that much wider way. So well, well, I think thank, was, thank you both very much. I think it was, was it Keating that said we're really good managers of crisis Australians, we're just not great managers of prosperity. Well, it'd be good to be great managers of prosperity as well. Yeah, well, let's let's take a crisis-based path to, to prosperity. The <laughs> way to, to sum that up. So, Tom, Allison, thank you so much for your time and lovely to talk to the two of you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's uh, the end of uh, episode three of Australia's Next Steps, the future of nation building in Australia. And thank you, Alison, and thank you, Tom, for joining me in the discussion. I really think we, we started to get at some really interesting points. Started with quite a bleak environment, but ended with quite a, I think, an almost optimistic view of Australia's potential future prosperity and security. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about there. And if you'd like to join the conversation on this topic or on any of the previous episodes, uh, you could tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back with the fourth and final episode of Australia's Next Steps next week. And until then, uh, stay well and thanks again for listening. Bye.